The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. Well, good morning. <clears throat> Always a, a pleasure to be in your parish on a day filled with baptisms. That's oh, just wonderful. Uh, we're at Matthew 3 this morning, which I believe is in your uh, worship guide. Matthew 3, beginning at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Uh, in Christian traditions around the world, uh, we have transitioned from a, the standpoint of the church's calendar from Advent into Christmas, and now we're in a season uh, called, called Epiphany. Now, I'll have to confess to you, this is one of my favorite seasons of the, of the church year, um, Advent and Christmas that we've just come through are in, in many ways shrouded with mystery. What, what, what the world's going on with this child of Mary's and Joseph's? In Advent season, for example, we enter into the longing for Christ to come. And then we go into Christmas and we celebrate our Lord's appearing in the manger and the stars and the shepherds and even remember the horrors of the death of the holy innocents, those young infant boys that Herod killed in a, in a mad rage to secure his own power. It's just, there's just a lot of mystery that surrounds the events of, of Christmas. So that Christmas carol that we sing, What Child Is This?, laid to rest in Mary's lap. I mean, what, what's this child going to do? These, these are questions that are kind of ringing in the air. It's, it's during the season of Epiphany, the one that we're in now, where the redemptive light switches are flipped on to high beams. But the very term epiphany suggests a manifestation, an unveiling, a turning on of the lights in the middle of the darkness. So during epiphany this season, Jesus' true identity as the Son of God and the Son of Man becomes manifest. And, and so Jesus takes a step toward the center stage of God's grand redemptive drama, and the stage lights of redemption flood on him. And all of us who are near it get caught up in the events. We're caught up in the force of the overwhelming light that's come into the world. So we, we say uh, verses like Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Or John chapter 1, Jesus is the true light that comes into the world and enlightens every person. And I'll just say this, I'm sure you feel this as well, uh, we need the light. I, I need the light. 
Our world is in desperate need of light. Darkness lurks in every corner of our world and our lives and our families. We find the darkness in the cemetery. We find it in the brokenness of our relationships. We find it in the warping of our desires. We find the darkness in the flickering flames of our faith. Last weekend, or actually a couple weekends ago now, I was uh, reading the Wall Street Journal of a fascinating interview with the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. I was going to tell you, I mean, I, if, if Jonathan Haidt writes it, I at least try to read some of it. He's a, he's a I think, very important voice in Western culture right now as a side conversation. But he's, Haidt, in this interview, is very concerned about the mental health of Generation Z. Uh, that's those kids that were born between 1995 and 2012. I see some of you over here. I've got a few Generation Z kids in my own house. I even like one of them. Um, joking, I like them both. This is what Mr. Height says. When, when you look at Americans that are born after 1995, what you find is that they have an extraordinarily high rate of anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide, and fragility. Um, he goes on to say, there has never been a generation this depressed, this anxious, and this fragile. I imagine that all of us here can probably tell a heartbreaking tale that relates to the fragility of today's youth. We have neighbors where we live in the south side in Birmingham who had to travel this weekend down to the coast to bury their 21-year-old nephew who took his own life. So our young people today are in need of an epiphany. Our world needs it. We stand in desperate need for the light to shine through the darkness. And Scripture is very clear where the light is to be found. It's found in the shining face of Jesus Christ, in Him and in Him alone. So this morning's reading out of the Gospel of Matthew, it follows Jesus to the banks of the Jordan River. And, and we're really about to have a dramatic epiphany moment. The, the light's about to break through into the darkness. Now, you know the scene. John the Baptist has been baptizing people as an act of repentance, a, a, a turning back to the God of Israel. So, so in this sense, John the Baptist is playing the role rather well of the Old Testament prophet. I'll often joke with my students at Beeson that if the prophet sold t-shirts you know, on a little kiosk outside the temple court, they would have one Hebrew word on their t-shirt, shuv, which means turn or, or repent. So John, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he's calling on the people to see reality for what it truly is. A reality that goes beyond the surface account of things to really see and to take into view the kingdom rule of God. So the prophets acted in epiphany-like ways, shining light into the darkness. And, and like the prophets, let's just say that John wasn't winning any popularity contest with the religious and political leaders of his day. He ruffled a lot of feathers. So John the Baptist is like the tremor before the earthquake. Announcing the kingdom of God. Something's about to happen. And an inbreaking of God's kingdom is, is upon us. And no one's quite sure 
of what all of this means yet. And then the least likely candidate in the history of humanity for a baptism of repentance eases into the waters of the Jordan River, makes his way to John the Baptist. This scene that you just heard read out of Matthew 3 is an uncomfortable one. It's, it's It's an awkward one in some ways. John the Baptist is, has to be stunned as he lifts his eyes and he sees his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, making his way through the waters to him. Not me, Lord. You don't come to baptism from, from me. I need to be baptized by you. Now, this is one of those areas of the Bible that I, I just find fascinating. We, we have so many gaps between little baby Jesus Little boy Jesus in the temple who got lost by his parents, and then full-grown man, 30-year-old Jesus of Nazareth. There, there are so many stories that we just don't know. And the Bible, kind of frustratingly, is uninterested in telling you. So remember, they're cousins. We, we don't family barbecues, Christmas gatherings. They didn't do Christmas, I get that, but uh, we, we don't we don't know what the history is between these two. But we do know that John the Baptist understands that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one that John tells his own disciples is greater than I am. He's the one that John says will come in time, and he's going to baptize us with fire and with the Holy Spirit. So I want us to see just two epiphany moments in this scene, a familiar scene. We all know the baptism scene. But, but two epiphany moments. The, the, the first is when Jesus responds to John's understandable alarm. You shouldn't be baptizing me, Jesus. I should be baptized by you. And this here is an epiphany moment. The curtain is, is being pulled back, and the mysteries of God's kingdom rule are now being proclaimed to us. Jesus says this to John. And by the way, only in Matthew's gospel, interestingly enough. He says, it's proper for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. That's a seismic moment in the ministry of Jesus. For those of you, and I imagine this is a lot of you, who are familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible, we kind of wore ours out in the Genelette house, this is the unveiling of God's great rescue plan. I can't help but think that all of Heaven and and the powers of darkness even stopped and and took note. Jesus of Nazareth is stepping into the waters of baptism so that he can fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness here is shorthand for the saving and redeeming activity of God. God's move to overcome humanity's enslavement to sin and its disordering power to move to defeat the evil one and that great enemy of humanity, death itself. So so whatever words we can come up with to describe what Jesus meant when he said, in order to fulfill all righteousness, our words fail us. It's more than what we can say. These words are beaming with the intent of our God to love his own all the way to the end. So the plates of the universe shift here When Jesus says these words to John, Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance. Jesus needed no ritual washing so that he could be pure in temple worship. Jesus enters into the waters of baptism so that he could identify with sinners like you and me. 
At these baptismal waters, Jesus begins his earthly ministry, a ministry that's going to move tyrannically to the cross, which is where Jesus' final baptism awaits him. And right on the front end of this baptism, his ministry begins with a bang, and it clarifies Jesus' mission and his identity. I've come for sinners. I'm waging war against the forces of darkness. I'm not after Rome. Small potatoes, Rome. I'm after death. I'm wading into the messiness of human sin and corruption. This is an epiphany moment. Jesus breaks into the waters of the Jordan River and then emerges, dripping wet. The character of God is on display here. His character to save sinners. And Jesus begins in this way. I don't need salvation, Jesus says. But everyone who's walked this planet does. And I'm wading into the waters of baptism to identify with them today. This is the beginning of the great rescue plan of eternity. Second epiphany moment, and it's a big one too, is when Jesus comes up out of the water and the heavens rip open, the Spirit of God descends on Christ like a dove and we hear the following words from heaven. This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Another seismic moment. A heavenly declaration from the Father over the Son by the effective presence of the Spirit and the dove, combining quotes from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. This is my Son, Psalm 2, in whom I am well pleased, Isaiah 42. So these words of affirmation from God the Father here at Jesus' baptism, they, they propel us, they, they force us back to the Old Testament, back to the ancient words, so that we can make sense of what we're seeing and of what we're experiencing with Jesus. And it's in Isaiah 42 where we find a portrayal of what Jesus of Nazareth would be in time. I'd like to read three or four verses to you from Isaiah 42. So here, here's Isaiah 42, helping us understand what we're seeing in the waters of baptism and the emerging identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And Isaiah 42 says this, Behold my servant, servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, with whom I am well pleased. I've put my spirit upon him. Here comes the dove. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint. He will not grow discouraged till he has established justice to the ends of the earth. Who is Jesus? The one declared by the Father to be his Son in whom he delights. He doesn't shout or raise his voice. He doesn't come with bravado and the beating of his chest. He comes in meekness and humility and the power of God's kingdom rule. With those who are weak and troubled, he deals with them gently. And two of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering flick he will not quench, he will not blow it out. Jesus, as with his Father, knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dust. 
He holds us in the power and the comfort of his love and his forgiveness. If you're a cat of nine tails on the Cahaba River about to fall into the water, he will not push you over. If your soul is a flame about to extinguish, he is not going to come along and blow you out. He's come to establish God's order in the world. He's come to bring God's kingdom. He's come to teach us and to lead us into all truth, flickering flames of that we are. So just think Jesus here coming out of the water, the delight of the Father, the object of God's eternal delight. He's the instrument of salvation, the agent of creation. In a bruised reed, he will not break. In a smoldering flame, he will not blow out. For the repentant sinner who turns to him, he cannot turn away. To do so would be to deny his very character. I mean, when I think about the character of Jesus to identify with repentant sinners and to embrace them, I'm, I'm drawn to the hymns of my childhood. Hymns like, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. My song is love unknown. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I imagine, I don't know many of you, but I imagine that some of you here today may feel like a bruised reed or a flickering flame. May I just encourage you with these thoughts? Your faith is not saving faith because of its quality and its depth. Now, now I need to clarify this. I pray that all of us, myself included, um, grow in grace and the knowledge of the love of God. And that we will continue to hunger to know that grace and that knowledge and that love. But saving faith is not measured by its quality. Strong reeds, you know, burning flames. Saving faith is measured by its object. Jesus Christ, His life and death for you. Saving faith does not look at itself. In fact, we heard from Cameron this morning, the nature of sin is to continue to look at the self. Saving faith does not look at itself or its own quality. Saving faith is a turning again and again and again to the person and work of Jesus Christ. For those who turn to him and cling to him, he will never cast you out. He spreads a table of grace and love, and he bids you to sit down and to eat your fill. May I make a concluding comment about how Christ's baptism relates to our own baptism? Have you, have you ever noticed, if you've done a study in Matthew's gospel before, that Matthew begins uh, the ministry of Jesus with baptism and then ends his ministry after the resurrection with baptism? Going to all the world, preach the gospel making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. So Our baptisms that we experience in the life of the church are linked to Christ's baptism. So think of it this way. Christ enters into the waters of baptism not because He needs the forgiveness of sins, but He does so to identify with sinners like you and me. 
And we are baptized to identify ourselves with Christ. Or, or put better, in our baptisms, God moves towards us and claims us as his own covenant children in the terminology we heard this morning. Puts his mark on us. The sign and the seal of God's saving purposes with us. So our baptisms link our whole being to the person and the work of Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. They, they, they alter our fundamental identity and they orient you and me back to our true identity. An identity found in Christ. So this, this is a bit of a jolt. I don't know if it's so beautiful, the baptism this morning so cute. Uh, but it's a bit of a jolt to think of baptism this way. We're literally being drowned in the waters of baptism and then raised again to new life in Christ. And the implications of that are huge. It alters everything about us. There's a reason why folks like Martin Luther and John Calvin, the A-team, as we might say in the Reformation tradition, would encourage struggling Christians Flickering flames, bruised reeds would encourage them, as we heard from Jason already, to remember their baptism. I knew an Anglican priest who would bring all the children down to the front of the church during baptisms. And he would look at all of them and even grab some water and throw it on them. Tell them to remember their baptism. Truth be told, all of us, adults as well in the parish, probably need to come and sit on the floor and be reminded of our baptism. Be re reminded of who we are in Christ. Your true identity, and this is so countercultural today, but your true identity is not an act of self-discovery. Your true identity is found in seeing yourself in Christ, in His grace, in His glory, and in His power. You ever think about this? We have no true life or identity outside of him. We were wandering in darkness, and he brought us into the light. Christ's baptism was an epiphany, and our baptisms are an epiphany as well. We see who we really are. We're brought into the light, adopted sons and daughters of the living God, because we're bound to Jesus. I'm not my own, the Apostle Paul said. I've been bought with a price. I'm not on social media um, because I'm a Christian. Um, if whatever, um, but I'm, I'm not. But I, but I, but I will go search certain people that I like to read their Twitter, Twitter feeds. And I was, I stumbled on some. I can't even remember where it was, but it's a, it was a Twitter feed of some of a video that I imagine most of you have maybe already seen. I'm always late to the party on these things. Um, and it was dated 2000, either 18 or 19, so I realize it's a bit older video. Um, but uh, but it, it just absolutely got me. Um, I'm getting probably a little bit more sentimental as I age, but a um, little boy, about 9 or 10 years old, you come to find out that the boy's name is Carter. And he's sitting on the floor on Christmas morning with his foster family. So you know that Carter's not a part of the family, he's in foster care. And they hand Carter a, a gift bag. And they say, Carter, there's two things in there. I want you, want you to open it and look. You can see the mom talk, talking to him. So he opens it up, and, and the first thing that he opens is a picture of the family. There's mom and dad, and I think maybe four or five siblings standing around. And then there's a letter. And the letter says, Carter, this is a picture of our family taken last year. 
We'd like to know if you'll be in the picture going forward. Would you like to be our son and our brother? And the boy's reading this, and he, kid, he just absolutely, nine or ten years old, absolutely falls apart. It's gorgeous. It's a beautiful scene of adoption. Baptism is our Father's letter to us, reminding us that He's bought us, that He's made his, the first move toward us, reminding us that we're His adopted sons and daughters of the living God because of who we are in Christ. Pray that God in His mercy will allow us to really see the light today, the light of God's redemption revealed in Christ, and the light of our true identity found in Him, sealed by the Holy Spirit in the waters of baptism. And I also pray that we know that what God offers us, and I think about this for the young people in the room, but really for all of us, to remember that what God offers us in Christ is better than anything that the world has to offer. He's better. His light is brighter. His truth is more resplendent. So remember your baptism. Amen.